House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren and Mr. David Martino Rose Patterson <laughs> is here. We know it's back to a new week. Yeah, that's right. It's the torture yeah. week. It's the time it's torture I, week I here. come back to be mean. That's to right. Man, to the man in the dress. <laughs> the man in the dress. The <laughs> man in the dress here. Uh, yeah. Drinking whiskey. We have to be mean to someone like that. That's just uh, that's just the way character. it goes. That's a character. I can't believe that you're the nice one. I know, right? I mean... Am I? Well, <laughs> they think you are. <laughs> they think you it's are. It's all smoke and mirrors, Al. Yeah. It's all smoke yeah. and mirrors. Well, you need them for that dress. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, so now we've got an interesting uh, show this week, or mm-hmm. today, actually, this week. Um, now, this uh, there hasn't seen this kind of a title since we had Nobody Wants Joe's Penis show. <laughs> and uh, Now, that was a fun show, too, right? We, yep. I, you know, I, I didn't know why anybody wouldn't want his penis. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, anyway, that doesn't matter. So now, now we, so we've got a returning guest, and his new book is called The Grand Sex Tur Murders. It's hard for Canadians to speak like that. <laughs> and our guest is Daniel M. Jaffe. Thank you for being here, Dan. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you both. Well, it's a pleasure here, you know, and uh, so this is interesting. Now, I see the whole concept of this book. So now if people don't know what the book looks like, there's a looks like a couple of men and probably in a shower or in a bathhouse. And uh, it looks like someone's got a big knife and is going to stab them. And it's called Grand Sex sex Tour Murder. So uh, that's an interesting imagery. should I ask where it came from? Oh, sure, sure, sure. I mean, in terms in terms of the actual photo, um, my 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 publisher, the managing publisher at Rattling Good Yarns Press, Ian Hensel, he loves to do his own art for book covers whenever he can, rather than use sort of stock images that one can buy from the internet. Uh, he likes it because it gives control for marketing purposes, but also. Uh, he had a, a very he witnessed an embarrassing experience where he went to a literary conference and two different authors were so proud of their new books and both books had the same cover because <laughs> their publishers had decided on using the same stock images um, so so we try to avoid that so the the novel itself the the sort of basic plot premise is that there is a retired porn producer who decides, you know, he's kind of tired of making all these porn movies and is really looking for his pot of gold. So he and his husband slash partner, business partner, come up with the idea to take a group of sexy young men to Europe to go through the bathhouses of Europe and have a sex competition. And whoever wins will then become the next great porn star. And what they'll do is they'll live stream it on the Internet and get subscribers and have people bet uh, on which young man is going to win the competition. So there'll be money from gambling. And they think this is going to be a fantastic moneymaker. So they take the guys. But what they don't know is that a serial killer is following them, and he starts picking off the young men one at a time. So that's the basic plot premise. So for the cover, uh, 
And, and it's a satire. The novel is, is tongue-in-cheek. So we wanted a cover that would hopefully capture those ideas. So we thought, as you described, two fellas uh, looking like they're in a shower bathhouse with a, a knife uh, being held by someone behind them. And we thought, well, this is kind of campy and funny. And yet it captures at the same time kind of the essence of the plot. So uh, the, my publisher, I, I live in, we both live in Southern California. I live in Santa Barbara. He lives in Palm Springs. They're about four hours apart. And I, I go to Palm Springs sometimes. And so he said, well, the next time you're coming, let me know and we can, you know, shoot the cover. So he had friends who had redone their bathroom with a very strange metallic kind of tile and it made it look like some sort of bathhouse. And they were very generous and, and let us use it. And, and the publisher asked a couple of friends of his to model. Um, so there are these two men uh, up against this metallic shower wall and then my publisher realized oh no but we don't have anyone uh to sort of hold a knife and i said you can use my hand and arm in the cover so so on the cover that's actually my hand holding the knife behind them so i'm now a cover model it's my first time being a cover wow. model. well yeah. so that you said a mouthful there and that's not no pun intended there <laughs> So, so those those were actually people that the publisher know. I thought maybe it was going to be Ian and maybe someone else. You know, no, no, Ian's the photographer. He's the photographer, um, and uh, his husband, the uh, the co-publisher, Suki de la Croix. Suki was not in at the shoot. Suki was was uh, I think trying to to be busy with other work at the time. It was like a little too much for him. Suki is actually a little uncomfortable, I think, with sort of the. The, the the bold sexuality suggested by the cover. It's not on the cover, but it is suggested by the cover. So, does that, but does that worry you? Like when you, because when you present a cover like that, that's the first thing that comes to a person's mind. Is exactly. it's kind of a sexuality of some something, and obviously it's two guys. Does that sort of worry you that it sort of, I don't know what it, it sort of defines what it, the book really is. Well, we had we had lots of conversations about that. Actually, um, this was a a really thought out process, and we decided that this really is a very bold, in your face novel, and provocative, and so we thought we wanted a cover to match that, and we've been getting some very interesting reactions from the cover. So some folks see the cover. And they're totally intrigued by it. They think it's a riot and, and they, they want to buy the book. And that's exactly what we were hoping for. Um, we have gotten other reactions. Someone uh, said, talked about how, how the cover frightened him. And he would never read the book, a book with this kind of frightening cover, which was, well, that's very interesting. Um, but the most interesting reaction we've had is that we've, sort of been banned from the American library system, the U.S. library system, uh, because the way it works is the publisher sends out the, the book to very, uh, various distributors who then in turn send it to websites that libraries can rely upon. And the distributor has blocked it from going to those websites, um, not because of any content, because the distributor hasn't read it, but because of the title and cover. So we're now thinking of, well, what should we do about that? And Ian, the publisher, just came back from a, 
publishing conference where he was talking about it with fellow small press publishers to get ideas. And the overall reaction was, oh, my gosh, you're so lucky. We would love to have a book that's been banned. That's such a marketing tool. And so now um, Ian sent me a, a draft of a, a mock-up for promotional purposes of a cover of our cover, but with, with the picture kind of blanked out by the word banned. And so we're thinking about what we might do with that to sort of generate interest. Um, and, and it's at odds with reviews that we've gotten. So for example, we had a, a really wonderful review recently from Rainbow Book Reviews, where the reviewer starts off by saying, talking about how much he hates this cover and saying that he was he was on the fence about whether or not he wanted to review the book and how glad he is that he overlooked the cover, which struck him as cheap. And he was glad that he read the novel, which he enjoyed tremendously. And, I, you know, he did not see what we were hoping people would see was that it's a campy cover and we're playing with that notion of, of being cheap and, and engaging. Um, and unfortunately, he didn't see that, but 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 he did, you know, read the text, and, and so we're glad for that. So, was it a risky cover? Yes, absolutely. And we're seeing it cut both ways. That it, you know, brings in some readers and might be turning off others. Uh, and and we're just having to deal with that reality. Yeah, it's quite. That's quite the. Um, it is quite the cover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, have, have you thought about, uh, you know, maybe doing a different edition with a different cover to get um, yes. a different subset of people? Yeah. Absolutely. We've actually, we've been talking about that. And it's not, it's not, uh, we haven't come to a final decision, but Ian's totally open to it. So we're thinking about that as well. At the same time, I as writer and Ian and Suki together as publishers feel that we kind of have our main mission is not a, so so much about um, making money from our writing as it is making political statements from our writing and publishing. And we're kind of disturbed that putting that an image like this, which again, it's not sexual, though it's very sexually suggestive, um, that that can be causing a lot of fuss. And we feel like, well, you know, we want it out there and we want people to see it and maybe a little choose not to buy the book, but we want people to know that stuff like this is out there. We feel it's important for our freedom of expression to be able to put out whatever we want. And so we're not rushing to come out with a second edition, although we might at some point. So there's a political underpinning for, for this, too. You can call it the GST martyrs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, you know, put a straight couple on there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I keep thinking, it's like, well, that, that what was that, that, that book, Fifty Shades of Grey? Yeah. Which was like straight people and enjoying bondage and S&M, and that certainly was not banned. That was highly promoted. And so... You know, we kind of think that maybe there's some homophobia, too, in the reaction to this, as opposed to something like that, you know? Yeah. Well, I think you have to, I think at this point, um, 
people in uh, positions of like like in whatever it is, whether they're in a you know the distributor or the library or whoever it is, a lot of times when they see something that's gay and sexual, right away in their mind it's dirty. Exactly. So exactly. The, you know, so that's that's the just the it response. And some might go, oh, well, just settle down and kind of be okay. But others, no, they're gonna they, they hold on to that. It's like this is this is kids can't look at this. Oh my God, you know it's the, right. This is the time of the don't say gay in Florida bill, right? So there's a lot of initial to, to that. So is this sort of? But in that in that instance, is this what your political statement's trying to say? Yeah, it really is, um, Al. It's it's very much that you think basically the phrase "we're here, we're queer, get used to it," and that why are you treating us with the dis- by a different standard? So my thought: this is certainly not a novel for for young people. It's certainly not a novel that should be in high school libraries, as far as I'm concerned. If I had kids, I wouldn't want them exposed to this, whether it's gay, straight, or something else. But I do think it's it's something that should be available to any adult who wants to consider purchasing it. So my objection is not that a librarian might choose not to put it in his or her library, but that librarians are not being given the opportunity to make that decision. That a distributor, a go-between, between publisher and libraries is making that decision. So that's what I feel is 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 wrong, and um, so we're we're kind of comfortable sticking by our guns at this point. Oh, don't bring guns into it. <laughs> this, is, this is not the time for guns. You're going to really lose there. That's just throwing it on there. You know, just, just don't say that. Um, but where does where does this whole idea come from? Like this whole idea to me. Um, with all of the aspects of it, the live streaming, the, you know, the, be a, be a porn star, be like a model, be watched going through competitions. It's it's kind of, it kind of represents a lot of what goes on with the internet and with even television shows, you know, dancing with the stars, do you name it? Everybody's watching everyone. So with all of that in mind, what was it that you were hoping that the reader gets out of this book besides the entertainment sure well i myself have enjoyed over the years watching some of the reality tv shows uh, and then as time has gone on some of them have just struck me as so inappropriate uh, by my standards not that they shouldn't be made but i stopped enjoying them like like uh, some of the ones where there's like dating uh where everybody is put in, in a house or, or complex, and we see them in bed together, we see them eating together, we see everything. And I thought, you know, I, this is just too private. And so I thought, hmm, how can I convey that maybe there's something wrong with this? Um, and so I started thinking about that and started thinking about, well, what if, there were, if I were to push it to an extreme? Like there's this, there's this show I thought I watched and I thought, this is just so ridiculous. It's called, I think it's called Naked and Afraid. And, <laughs> you know, it's like people who are in, in adventures, you know, out in the wilderness or jungle or something, and um, they're naked having these adventures. And I'm, you know, fine with nudity and all that, and there's nothing that I've seen that is sort of, uh, you know, sexual between the contestants or anything on TV. But it just seems like they're taking an idea and pushing it so far 
that it's just it's just kind of bizarre because who in real life would do that? You know, you put on boots and you go in the jungle with no other clothes on as you're trying to do an adventure. It makes no sense. So I thought, well, let's let's how how could I push it even farther? And I thought, well, how about this a, a live streaming sex competition where where only the contestants know that they're being streamed and actually the way I have it in the novel is the contestants all wear headbands with that look like sweatbands but they really have little cameras in there so they're going around bathhouses and photographing filming people who have no idea they're being filmed so that's like taking it beyond what reality tv is because with reality tv the, the participants all are consenting to being participants but in the novel there are people being filmed who don't know that they're being filmed and so there's a line being crossed there and so i'm trying to to push the envelope and show how silly it is um and and also with you know the pornography that is now so available online um and and uh, i don't know if it's a lot of it really is amateur they label it amateur i don't know if that's just a marketing gimmick to get people to enjoy it or not but that is also the feel is you're in someone's private bedroom or something. So I thought, well, let's put all this together and, and, and push it so far that we can recognize how silly it is. Not to stop it by any means, but let's just acknowledge what we're doing and, and what we're watching. As for the, the, the killer part, that actually has a very serious uh, origin for me going back decades i'm now in my mid-60s and i came out and started dating like over 40 years ago and at that time the 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 norm before the computer the way people would meet each other would be to go to a bar and you go to a bar and you meet somebody and if you like that person the norm was just to go home with that person and being in my early 20s and very innocent and naive, I didn't always use the best judgment in doing that. And it you know, gradually occurred to me that there's real danger here going home with what, in essence, is a stranger. Uh, the, the worst experience I, I had in that regard that really woke me up was one time I was living in Cambridge outside of Boston and went to a bar in Boston and stayed past the time when the subways, the T it's called there, shut down. So this fellow and I met and the T had shut down and he suggested walking back to my place, which was a good you know, mile and a half, two miles across the Charles River. It's like, okay, if that's what you wanna do. So we're walking and he's carrying a beer bottle and we're on the middle of a bridge over the river and there's very little traffic because it's so late. And he turns to me and says, you know, I could break this beer bottle and have a wonderful weapon. And I thought at the time, oh, my God. And I was really <laughs> frightened. So fortunately, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't an evil character. But that planted the seed over 40 years ago of the danger inherent in this. And then being aware that there are sex clubs and so forth, which can be wonderful fun. But also, you're with strangers. Anybody could do anything. And that was the seed of the idea of, well, what about if there were a serial killer to bathhouses and there's no way people could defend against, you know, that evil intent. So those two ideas came together as, as kind of a, a cautionary tale. Like, again, not that people shouldn't do things or go places, but be aware of, of how to protect oneself if one does that kind of thing. 
the the notion like in the in the novel uh as the young men start being killed one after another the the porn producer who's in charge of everything he and his husband start getting suspicious you know at first they think it's a coincidence oh my gosh there was an accident and then the next one another one really and then they start to realize maybe there's someone after the boys should we stop the whole competition because it's just too dangerous and initially they decide not to so in that regard it's a, a comment on what some people will do for money and putting others at risk uh themselves but also others and not not suggesting that we have to that protection is more important than earning money so it's a comment on that on on what uh uh business people whatever the business uh might be willing to do uh, in order to make a buck did you um have a particular person or serial killer out there that you tried to um emulate as your serial killer like who who did you use as a kind of a you know some a, a formula a formula for your own killer or did you i i did not um i i did not um i i purposely avoided researching into uh the the wealth of of uh non-fiction available about serial killers uh I know there's a lot out there. I have basically a lay person's familiarity with serial killers watching, you know, like the, the TV series, uh, Dexter with that serial killer, um, watching, um, the, the TV series forensic files where there are not necessarily serial killers, but, but killers, um, and how the police figure out through forensics who did what. Um, also having read some novels, like there, there were, I, I would, should say, a couple of novels that kept lingering in mind as I was writing. One was Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, which is about a, a small group of people in a particular location, and then they're being picked off one at a time. And one of the things that I loved about that, that I tried to incorporate here, was the notion of each murder victim being killed in a different way so it's not the same thing over and over because i thought for fiction it's important to have the variety that in real life a serial killer might you know have the same modus operandi and and do it the same way and, and get great satisfaction from doing that um whereas i thought here i needed to keep it a little more interesting as fiction the other novel that came to mind was Silence of the Lambs, the character of Hannibal Lecter, who was such a clever, clever fellow and and highly cultured. And in that regard, I would say there is a kinship between him and my serial killer, who is also very cultured. And the thing about it's funny calling him my serial killer, you know, <laughs> <laughs> about my serial killer, is that he does not set out initially with the goal of killing. He discovers through the process of the novel that he actually has repressed a desire uh, to instill pain and death and that he actually finds it exciting. So in a way, he has been a closeted serial killer. And 
psychologically speaking, I brought to this a kind of parallel notion of any closeted person coming out uh, where there are feelings and desires that are repressed and gradually they come to the fore and one begins to act on them and realize, yes, this is part of who I am. Uh, so I, I, in answer to your question, I did not look for a particular model. I, re I rather wanted to explore him as a character, the way I explore any character, and have the character evolve as the story evolves. And that was kind of my process. Well, how did you get into the mind of the killer? Um, you know, in, in the actual, you know, killing aspect of the uh, sure. Sure, of sure. character. That's a good question, David. Well, as a as a writer, I I feel the strongest writing comes where plot and character and place all interact so that it doesn't feel like one aspect is imposed on another. So what I mean by that is knowing that I wanted this guy to start a killing spree and then continue with it, I started thinking about, okay, well, let me put the young men in a particular bathhouse and what are the physical features of that bathhouse that might lead to a killing? And the first killing was actually accidental. The first killing is the one that actually awakens this beginning awareness that the killer is interested in killing. And so I'm thinking, okay, where could an accident happen and where would be a good place? So I picked a bathhouse. Now I should say that I fictionalized the names of the bathhouses in the novel, but they are all based on actual bathhouses in Europe. So I had physical, very real physical spaces in mind as I'm describing them. And so I thought for the first one, the simplest thing would be for him to accidentally knock someone down a set of stairs. Because this one bathhouse I had in mind in Copenhagen was three stories, very steep staircases. So what if he knocked somebody down accidentally? So, okay, so if that's going to happen, then how would that go about where he would be encountering somebody at the top of a staircase so i had to so it was kind of working backwards you know hmm. uh knowing that that's how the murder should happen or the the accident that led to death should happen how do i set it up so it's credible for all the characters involved so then it's going into the minds of the characters so then okay so that accident happens and then knowing that the killer needs to be moving forward to kill elsewhere what is his motivation to do that? Well, he has to enjoy it. So hmm. then I stepped back from killing and just started thinking, how does anybody come to understand that he enjoys something that he didn't know he would enjoy? And it could be as simple as taking it completely out of a sexual context. What about somebody who tries a food for the first time? You know, like I yeah. remember the first time I tried sea urchin, <laughs> the, the, the idea <laughs> of it, this spiny looking thing, I thought this is going to be awful. And I tried it and was like, oh, my gosh, now I understand why it's considered a delicacy. This is amazing. I want it again. So trying to take that kind of mindset and pleasure in something and then substituting the source of pleasure. 
and saying, okay, so this is a different kind of pleasure, um, but the psychology is similar. So then, okay, so now he wants to, he, he tried this and really loved it and he wants it again. Um, and for him, part of his motivation throughout is he's finding great pleasure in the killing and aftermath of being with his victims. But there are other motivations that actually take place. So for example, he develops great affection for one of the young men. Um, he's with them over and over during their adventures. They don't know who he is. He's sort of just there. And, and he really develops a fondness for one of them. And he starts fantasizing. What if after the competition, this young fellow and I could become lovers? Oh, my goodness, wouldn't that be amazing? And he concocts a whole thing for himself. And then the, uh, this young fellow spots him over one of the bodies that he has killed. And the young fellow becomes suspicious. So now the killer thinks, oh, no, to protect myself, I have to kill him. So right. it's a totally different motivation. It's a self-preservation motive at that point. And he doesn't like having to kill him, but he does. And so each, each killing is a little bit different. There's this underlying, I mean, it's, it's, of course, it's very matter of fact to him for him. Well, this is my solution for everything. I'll just kill the guy, you know, <laughs> um, but his, but the specific motivation for each murder is different. And the degree of pleasure is different. And the kind of murder that takes place is different because of the place. So in thinking, again, thinking about uh, setting for, the, for the, the killings, I tried to think, okay, so different bathhouses, what's the setting? And so there was one, the one where he eventually gets caught, and the reader knows early on that he does get caught. So, so the usual typical mystery of who's the killer and will, who will, get, and will he get caught, those elements of tension are not in this book. The, the, the tension throughout the book is who will be killed, what are the motivations, and how will he be caught? So the, the, the bathhouse setting where he's eventually caught, it's a small bathhouse that has private cubicles that anyone can use. And I thought that would be a good if I were if I were a serial killer trying to lure somebody somewhere, where would I try to lure them? And I would try to lure them into a private space where I could kill them and close the door after me after I leave and nobody would be the wiser. And so this particular bathhouse in Berlin that I had in mind, that would have that had the right kind of setup for that. So again, so setting the physical setting I had in mind. Uh, very much played into my figuring out the mindset of the killer. Of course, I did need then to go deeper into the killer and sort of think of, well, but what kind of person does this, you know? And given that this is a satire, I tried to get to use the idea of, of that is very often used in cheap fiction of any kind, which is not developing a whole lifetime psyche of a character as much as thinking, oh, there was one moment that turned me into this. There's one moment that made me decide I will forever be a good person or a bad person or a virtuous person or a kind person. So I created uh, an experience in the characters, in the killer's youth, where he discovered a penchant 
for inflicting pain and bodily harm and loving it. But then he represses it and it only comes out so much later. So I did have to go and sort of start examining a psyche. But in that regard, it was no different than what I do for any character, trying to build up Mm. a character. You know, uh, again, keeping in mind this is fiction and keeping in mind that it is tongue in cheek and and trying to poke fun. Mm. So it's not not fully realistic, you know. And there's another question that's been on my mind since I read the, you know, the the idea of this description. And it says how so now there's a contest and you're going to win to be the next big porn star and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And it's a big, big deal. And it's, uh, you know, it's the, you're the person that has the highest score or the highest amount of sex points. How do you get sex points? <laughs> like, what are you, like, what are these point systems? Like, I'm not sure. I don't understand what it is you do. You know, you're asking really a wonderful question that I had to ask myself, too, of course, is, is how, how is all this measured? And how do I convey that to the reader in a way that makes sense? So what I decided to do was to actually, like the, the almost the opening of the novel, right after sort of an opening prologue, is what I call the investor prospectus that the porn producer put together describing um, the his plan so that he could solicit funds to get this business off the ground. And so through the investor prospectus, uh, I go through and describe everything. And so the, the points are based on, um, and, and also later on, he is giving instructions to the young men who are participating. So you get certain points for certain kinds of sex, and the sex has to last a certain number of minutes in order to count. And, um, you know, this is all being filmed, you know, because everybody's wearing a headband camera and there is an additional cameraman who's wandering around focusing on all this. And the, the, uh, the, the real big scam that the porn producer is, is having is he says, you know, we're having all this film footage and we're filtering it into a master computer that has an algorithm that figures all this out. So don't do this kind of sex because you won't get points for it. Do do this kind of sex because you will get points for it. And you get more points for this kind of sex than that kind of sex. And you just do it and film it. And we put it all into the computer. And the computer comes out after each evening's fun um, to say who was the winner for that evening. Well, it's all bogus. And the reader knows it's bogus. The contestants do not know it's bogus. So what actually happens is the porn producer um decides well whom should i make the winner tonight whom do i think where is the betting because it's live streaming there's live live gambling going on and so if he sees somebody's not getting uh enough uh bets on him then maybe he'll push him forward as the winner to up his up the betting for him and to basically play the tension so the boys think they have a guidepost for how to win, but it's all crooked. So it's also a commentary on gambling. You know, I mean, I, I can't say which kind of gambling is crooked, which kind of is, is not. I'm sure a lot of it is legitimate, but I suspect that some of it is not legitimate. And 
I not being a gambler, I don't know. But that's one of the things I wanted to poke fun at. And it also was part of the adding to the tension for the porn producer in that um, he has just like um, in, uh, oh gosh, what was that? Uh, uh, Zero Mostel uh, movie where they oversell, you know, uh, Springtime for Hitler. Mm. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? It was that Mel Brooks did a version of this musical where the producers, the producers. Oh yeah. Okay. You know, where they, they figured they'll make a fortune by having a flop and they'll oversell interest in it. And then it turns into a success and they can't pay everybody back. Well, um, my porn producer, uh, oversells and he, some of his investors are the mafia, the Russian mafia, drug cartel lords. Um, because who else is going to invest in a live streaming porn competition? So he has to pay them back. So he has to figure out ways to manipulate the money. And when he starts feeling, well, this is dangerous. Should we shut it down? He's thinking, but I have a debt to these entities. And if I don't pay them back, they're going to kill me. So no, 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 we have to keep going. So he then manipulates the whole point system even more. So you asked the exact right question. It is it is a bogus system, a bogus mm. system. Now, um, when you look back at this and when you're doing your research or when you're writing the book um, and you look at the whole setting and you finish the book, now, um, do, did, you, did you learn something or did you re- find out something about the whole um, bathhouse sex trade industry that you didn't know before? Um, that's a, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I think it heightened my sense of danger in these places. And one of the big, one of the differences, the reason that I chose to set it in Europe, as opposed to the U S is that in the U S when one goes to places like this, you have to show your ID to get in. So if a killer were to do that, then even though nobody might see the killer killing the killer and and the killer were just to leave, well, there would be a list of who was in the bathhouse at that time. And the police or detectives, whomever, could then start tracing every patron who was there and could take DNA from the victims and take DNA swabs of everybody who was there and, and eventually perhaps find the killer. In Europe, there is no ID checked when you go into bathhouses. So there is no way to know who was there that night. So even, and, and this is, I bring this out in the novel itself, as, as the killer thinking, well, even if they take DNA, find my DNA on a murder victim, there's nothing to compare it with. They can't know that I'm the actual murderer because I'm not in any database. I never committed a crime before. And they can't know that I was there, so they can't come after me to take my DNA. So that was like, wow, that really is scary. And it, 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 the, the fear has been heightened for me, given real-life events, like we saw the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, where someone went into... Uh, LGBTQ bar and and killed people is there is really minimal if any security in these places and 
or any social space, any gay social space, doesn't need to be a sexual social space, but any gay social space, we really are quite vulnerable. And I think that the right process of writing this really heightened that, that worry on my part. Uh, and I, it's very interesting for me, uh, over 40 years ago, when I would go to gay bars, my fear was the police. I was afraid that if I left the bar and there was a police car outside, what if the police would want to harass me? That has changed for most of the country, if not all of it, as far as I know. Um, but now my fear going to any place, a gay social space is, well, what if they're, all it takes is one person with a gun. That's all it takes. And there are no metal detectors before you go into a, a gay social space. So the, writing the novel just sort of reinforced that fear for me um, and, and heightened my awareness of our vulnerability. And I would actually want to suggest that you know, places take greater security measures, um, especially with political change that we're seeing in the United States right now with um, uh, a lot of hatred being more open and people being more comfortable expressing that hatred. Yeah, you're right. It's totally, totally, um, it, it, it will make people aware of that. I, I understand that. Yeah, and, 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 you know, I certainly, I'm hoping that this, that the novel doesn't stop anyone from going wherever they want to go and having a fun time. But I don't know that it's the worst thing in the world for people to sort of occasionally, you know, check over your shoulder just to make sure that, you know, there are no bad actors around um it's yeah. like anything else you know going uh, walking down a street uh, being aware of one's surroundings that's all yeah well now you give dave an idea he can go to europe now he's, he's gonna stay, <laughs> stay away from the american bathhouses he's heading to europe <laughs> nobody will catch me yeah nobody will catch you there he's no. all, you know ah see you're giving ideas to people you know? <laughs> that's right now. <laughs> but it was fun um, um, picking, you know, bathhouse settings and which cities uh, to use and trying to think, OK, practically speaking, a, a coherent travel itinerary through more or less central Europe rather than going all over the place. Um, that might, you know, make sense. And and um, and then which bathhouse in which city? I, and I had a little fun because I actually did uh, in Vienna uh, go to a couple of different places trying to find what might be a good setting. And I went to one um, which it, it ended up being way too small, and and the patrons were really there more for just socializing really rather than engaging in any kind of sex and I thought well this wouldn't be good for for my novel purposes but I had such a pleasant time chatting with people they were they were serving some so they had a big bar area and they were serving some kind of cream pie that everybody was enjoying and so there you know everybody's sitting around in their towels enjoying pie and people heard I was from America they wanted to talk about their trips to the U.S. and talking about their going sightseeing and Yosemite and and it was just I had such a nice time chatting with people but it's like no that's not what what, what my competition mm. in the novel is all about you but said it was, it was small small so they must have called it the Vienna sausage <laughs> <laughs> 
I love that. I love that. I'm terrible. I'm getting it. Um, well, let's let's talk about your contacts. So where where do the um, killers out there find you? Do you have a social media website? What what what's your contact I, info? Yeah. Well, anyone who's after me, I do have my website is simply uh, danieljaffe.com. And um, um, I have a, like a different page for each of my, my books. And this is one page that's there. Um, and if people want to explore other work of mine, which is very different, this is the only uh, a book of mine with a killer in it. <laughs> so thank you for asking. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. You know, I was going to say that. That was kind of one thing I was curious about. Making the transition because your books are very different. So, uh, going into something like this, how how was that for you? Was this a difficult transition? No, I had a blast. It was great fun. Actually, um, all my all my books, uh, short story collections and novels prior to this, were very very serious. Um, I, I I really spent years and years writing about characters with deep deep psychological angst, the difficulties of coming out. Uh, in particular, and, and for me, my own life um, reflected in my fiction. Uh, I grew up in an observant Jewish home, and so wrestling with my gayness as a teenager was very difficult. It was there was a lot of there were many religious issues, um, and so you know I wanted to get away from it. I was tired of dealing with with sadness um, and and that kind of emotional pain based on my personal experience it was good for me to write it because I got it out of my system but having gotten it out of my system I wanted to write something that I thought was tremendous fun and as different as could possibly be from what I had written in the past and so stumbling on this idea and it started the, the whole novel started with my working on the character of the the killer and coming up with a very uh, sophisticated narrative voice for him because uh, the novel has different voices in it and his voice I, I had so much fun it was such a departure and being a departure it was just a joy actually it was a joy. So you wrote it in in several people's minds, like the, yes, what they thought. Yes, uh, the way. So the, the 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 premise is that the book is actually the memoir of the porn producer, and so his voice is a, is one of the main voices. He's telling the story of the whole thing, and then I fig- I wanted to get the killer's voice in there, so he conducts interviews with the serial killer after the killer has been caught. So what I do is I intersperse the porn producer's memoir with interviews with the killer. And the killer wants to be known. He wants his exploits to get as much attention as possible. So he's delighted to be revealing everything. So the way it works is um, plot-wise, you'll have the, the porn producer talk about, okay, we're taking the boys to... Uh, the Copenhagen bathhouse. And then that will be followed by the killer's, uh, an interview with the killer in his voice where he is now reflecting on what happened that night. And then I have another set of scenes where there are hidden cameras in the contestants' uh, hotel rooms so the porn producer can watch them and overhear what they're saying. So I have transcripts of the young men in their hotel rooms 
Um, so it's a different, it's basically almost entirely dialogue rather than narration like the, the killer's doing. And that's where we get to see the, the sweetness and kindness and humanness of these contestants. Because I wanted to make sure that the reader would see them as full human beings and not just as sort of sex machines. Um, I think uh, one of the things I'm trying to do in the novel is dispel the notion that someone who has sex is a bad person and someone who engages in sex professionally is a bad person. It's like, no, these are ordinary people and they're choosing this for various reasons. Um, and let's find out what those reasons are and let's not you know, condemn them uh, as, as people just because of choices they're making. For example, this war veteran, um, he's, he's having nightmares and he's screaming at night and he's waking up his roommate and he finally opens up that he saw his bud, one of his buddies being blown to smithereens in the war and he's totally traumatized by this. So he's, he's a character who up to that point has not been very likable, but then we see he's carrying this great suffering. So that's an example, and I try to do that with other characters as well, so that we understand each of the contestants, and we mm. sympathize with them. And in fact, one review said, you know, in this novel, you will laugh and you will cry. And I think the crying part is where we realize how human these young men contestants are, and we can't just dismiss them as, you know, dirty young men having sex all the time. Well, I'm wondering, too, you know, you're talking about uh, a voice, and uh, I just wonder, do, do you hear the voices of your characters uh, in your head? Uh, is that how you experience your characters, how you create the narration and the dialogue? Yeah, that's such a good question. I feel as I'm, with any fiction I'm writing, I cannot consider a character fully developed until I can indeed hear the character in my mm. head. And then um, it's a back and forth between reading what I've written aloud and then actually just not even needing to read it aloud, but hearing the voice. And that's right. That's exactly right to hear because each character has different voice rhythms. Um, and for example, one of the young men uh, in the competition is an immigrant from Japan. So I thought, well, how how can I appropriately capture that voice? I don't want to be stereotypical and have somebody with a, an offensive kind of uh, non-U.S. Asian accent. So I did research into what are the typical speech patterns of someone who grows up speaking Japanese and then learns English. And there are certain tics. And so I put those tics in because I, I myself love to study language and I know in whichever language I'm, I'm, I'm speaking, there are certain errors I will make because English is my first language. And whereas someone else from, say, if, if Spanish were their first language, they would be making other errors in this third language. Right. So what kinds of things are because this person is from, from a, a Japanese-speaking home? Um, that kind of thing. So each character, and, and, and after I went through, after I drafted the whole thing, one of the steps I took to go through the novel was to read it aloud so that each voice was distinct and to make sure. And there were times when some of the voices were not distinct enough, and I had to work on that to really make them different. And it, it goes back, I think, when I was a little boy, uh, whenever I came in, in the house after playing, my mother would say, 
you were playing with Bruce today, weren't you? And I'd say, well, how do you know? You're speaking like Bruce. Oh, today <laughs> you, were, you were playing with Barbara. Well, how do you know, Mom? Oh, well, because you're speaking like Barbara. So <laughs> it was it's something I guess natural for me to sort of absorb other people's speech. Um, and it's a question of, of then taking charge of it, you know, when writing fiction. But do these voices actually tell you how to drive and do they take over when you're doing things, you know? It not, it's not, not like giving me instructions. <laughs> they tell you to you, kill people. Do you wake up in strange people's beds, you know, and, and find bloody no, bodies not. by the, you know? No, they we won't tell, tell anyone. anyone. <laughs> no, what, what does happen is, is I, I, I start to see the characters behaving. You know, I think this is kind of typical for fiction writers is after we really start getting to know characters, we see them behaving. And so some of what some of their behaviors, in other words, we don't necessarily plan everything that we're writing out. Um, it just develop, evolves during a writing session. And the same is true with dialogue is as I develop a character's voice, then when I hear the character speaking uh, and, and two characters interacting, their voices could lead me to develop a scene in ways I hadn't planned. Um, and, and the same thing with narration, uh, particularly in this case with the killer whose voice was so distinct for me. Um, and um, one review called it a, a, that section like very chiseled prose. And I love that phrase because that character, the killer, does speak in very chiseled prose. Uh, as opposed to the porn producer, because I'm thinking, well, he's a porn producer. He's going to be rather, you know, regular Joe kind of speech, not really sophisticated speech. Um, but part of any character's voice is a product of the, my whole sense of the sensibility of the character. So thinking again about the porn producer, it's like, well, this is someone who immerses himself in pornography every single day. He's going to talk about it in a very matter-of-fact way. He's not going to use euphemisms for sex. He's not going to feel self-conscious in talking about sex. It's just, it's going to be very graphic and matter-of-fact because that's how he thinks about it, just the way an accountant talks about numbers, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, so that's the way he talked. What was fun was when I, my, my publisher and I, who's working in his role as editor, and we have to talk about what the young men are doing or stuff. And it's like, well, we can't use euphemisms either. So <laughs> we'd be very graphic in our conversations. And it's like, I hope nobody's overhearing because it doesn't sound like a very professional conversation between editor and writer, <laughs> but, but it was. Yeah, I bet. Well, well, I, I just don't know what to say. I haven't had my nipples that hard in an interview for a long time. <laughs> so uh, it's been a great a, a great talk. And now, okay, so the book you got to get, uh, it's called The Grand Sex Tour Murders, okay? And this is about uh, the author's experience when he was touring around uh, bathhouses. So... <laughs> Oh well, it's not exactly. <laughs> no, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it narrate it this way. So so you're gonna get the you're gonna get the ins and outs and he's, and remember he says tongue in cheek. So there's a lot more in the cheek than the tongue. Um, anyway, our author uh, guest Daniel M. Jaffe, thank you for being on the show. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, so much. I really appreciate your time and enjoyed our conversation.
Thanks, Daniel. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.